ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Courtney Vine for the semi-finals. She scores! She pulls away! 2023 has been a big year for the evolution of women's sport. And it's not just the Matildas making history. Over the weekend, a tiny outback Queensland town transformed its humble red dirt arena into Australia's first female-only rodeo. Nestled in the crook of the Gulf of Carpentaria, the host town of Normanton isn't particularly close to, well, anything. But for the passionate stockwomen keen to compete, the travel time was worth it. If it was just a regular everyday rodeo, I probably wouldn't have gotten in the car and paid for the diesel. Diesel's expensive right now (laughs) to come all the way out here, but it's an all-women's rodeo. You don't see that in Australia. I'm Alex Simon. And this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. But firstly, country towns across Australia are calling out for more doctors amid a shortage in the health workforce. In southeast New South Wales, one hospital in Bega is focusing on boosting training resources in a bid to entice student doctors to stay on after they graduate. They've been developing simulation in particular, essentially where fake bodies or mannequins recreate an illness or medical condition, and the student doctor can practice on them to mirror a real-life situation in a controlled environment. Adrian Reardon has this story. I'm at Southeast Regional Hospital, which has just launched a new high-fidelity simulation centre. There's a fake man and a fake baby on a hospital bed. They're mannequins that can blink and breathe and their hands are soft like rubber, almost real to touch. They can also impersonate a medical condition or an emergency situation. It's always a bit more interesting when um, you've got the noises in the background. That's Dr Nathan Oates. He's the Director of Prevocational Education and Training at the hospital. He first came to Bega as a medical student in 2006 and has been determined to get other doctors to work in the region ever since. He says investing in simulations as one form of training could be the ticket for student doctors to stay working in country practice. First of all, simulation-based education is one of the, um, I guess, the kind of cutting-edge approaches to medical education. And so having a facility with the equipment that we have here in a regional environment provides opportunity to training Um, that we just haven't had in the same way in the country before. But the other thing alongside that is um, in the country we've often really struggled um, to get the workforce that we need and what we know is if we provide good and really memorable and helpful education for staff that that are coming through their training that they're much more likely to think about coming back to um, these kind of locations when they they finish their training. Um, And so that's really the big picture of this, is that this will be something that helps um, rural and regional health workforce. The Rural Doctors Association of Australia's CEO, Peter Rutherford, agrees. Equipment like this is a huge investment. Young doctors see that the health service is investing in their future. They can see that they can access good quality training locally and not just always have to say go to Sydney to access this type of equipment. So it's really important that these resources do exist in the regions. There are currently 14 students from Canberra's Australian National University on placement at the Bega Hospital, which form part of about 100 students over the year. Junior doctor and ANU graduate Emily Sasson has returned to Bega for an internship after doing placements at the hospital as part of her degree. 
She says the simulation training has helped boost her confidence. We have a really good education program here as a junior doctor. Each week we get two hours of dedicated training time and often that involves at least one hour using the simulation programs. Already the hospital has given me some money to go and do some hand intensive training and simulations elsewhere up in the NT and then being able to come back and apply that to the simulations has been like really good practice that I feel like I wouldn't have got in the city. Having gotten those skills early in my career has made me a lot more confident doing um, after-hour shifts. Can you see yourself sticking around here or what's your yeah, plan? No, I've enjoyed it so much that I've asked to extend my placement here. So next year I get to move up to paediatrics ward and do orthopaedics. Um, and then after that I'm going to Cooma, which is still part of this region, and doing some GP and ED work there, which I'm excited for too. 23-year-old ANU medical student Selena Poliferone is living in Bega for a year as part of a rural placement. After living in Sydney, she admitted it was a challenge getting used to country living, but can now see a future working in the regions. Uh, at first, I I was kind of bored a little bit on the on the weekends, but then I joined some community clubs, like I joined the soccer club, and um, I started to meet people in the community at the gym and stuff. And yeah, it's actually been I haven't felt lonely like for the second half of the year. It's been it's really. Yeah. Does it make you think about the future and whether you want to stick around working in, in the regions? I, I could certainly see myself working here as like an intern or even like as a locum doctor doing month stints here, absolutely. But unless I did the rural program, there'd be no way that I could actually see myself like living here long term. Like, so it's put it as a really strong possibility in my mind where before it wasn't there. Medical student Selena Polifrone ending that report from Adrian Reardon. ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. As we've been reporting for some time, the competition for housing across the country is fierce. Yesterday, the federal government was able to progress its $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund legislation following support from the Greens. The fund has plans to build 30,000 new social and affordable homes in its first five years, so it will still be some time before some of that housing stock is built and available. Sunshine Coast resident Prudence Maguire was relieved when she secured a place a little over 12 months ago, saving her and her dog Rufus the possibility of homelessness. But soon the home began to make her sick, and she was once again facing the prospect of house hunting. Our reporter Owen Jarks has this report. I'd been there for a few months, and unfortunately I kept getting unwell. Even though I was in the property, I was supposed to be in this stable environment, but I still kept getting unwell. I kept needing hospital every few weeks, and I couldn't work out why. I thought, I know, we'll do a spring clean. So I just pulled everything away, did a big clean as quick as I could because I'm quite slow. But um, I pulled away a dresser and behind the dresser was this, it looks like the map of America, like all the states divided of black mould. I've never seen anything like it. It made me jump back because I know how bad anything mould related is for humans, especially with a lung condition. Ms Maguire lives with cystic fibrosis, a genetic condition that leaves her lungs particularly vulnerable to any kind of infection. When she contacted her private landlord, she says they suggested she clean the mould with vinegar, which Ms Maguire refused to do. She knew the risks, and eventually so did her doctors. Her GP found she'd developed a mould allergy and bronchiectasis, a condition where tubes inside the lungs become inflamed and infected. 
he wrote a letter outlining his concerns. Prue needs to move out of her current rental accommodation due to excessive mould infestation in the property. This mould exposure has a clear and significant negative effect on her chronic, severe medical conditions. At the height of the rental crisis on the Sunshine Coast and across the state, Ms Maguire was having to choose a home or her health. She made her decision and began inspecting rental properties despite having to compete with dozens of others desperate for a home. It was here at a viewing that she met the woman who she now says saved her life, a property agent named Sally McCormick. She came to me with a very bright and bubbly personality, very engaging. She waited for me after the open. We had a bit of a conversation. She sort of reiterated to me her situation and she was struggling a little bit health-wise, I believe. We didn't sort of dabble too much into it. And she told me about her situation in the current rental that she was in. And I guess I really took to her. You know, I thought to myself, she's a really good person. At the time, there was one vacancy for every 200 rental homes in the area. But Ms McCormick never doubted that she would find the right home for Ms Maguire. It was just a matter of time to find her something. So yeah, I was always going to help her. Yep. And that's what she did. Ms Maguire was out of her mouldy property soon after and into her new unit, complete with a yard big enough for Rufus to play. And as her health returned in the year since they met, Ms Maguire feels like she owes her agent everything. Sally honestly has saved my life. Because of the mould and how badly I needed to get out of there to detox my body, if I wasn't given this place to do that, I don't know where I would be now. She understood mould was an issue, so she made sure that this place was clean of it before I moved in. I just felt really supported, and I feel like it's a rare thing to find when you're coming in the real estate industry. There's a lot of negativity around it, whereas... I felt like she did above and beyond to make sure that um, me and Rufus had somewhere to live. Tenants Queensland Chief Executive Penny Carr says while Ms Maguire had a good outcome, renters should not need saving. It shouldn't have come to that. People should be able to, people should be assured that when they move into a property, it's safe and it's healthy. From this month, renting out a home with mould in the walls will be against the law in Queensland. There will be an explicit requirement and responsibility of landlords to ensure that the property is free of mould. And that's because we see the introduction of minimum standards in tenancy laws as of that date for new agreements. And any agreements that haven't been captured by the 1st of September 2024, they'll be captured at that point as well. Ms McCormick now works with renters in the Melbourne suburb of Frankston, 2,000 kilometres away. She says she's happy Ms Maguire is doing well, but says she doesn't deserve the credit for saving her life. Yeah, it's kind of surreal. Yeah, it's really surreal, actually. Um, I don't think that I saved her life, but, you know, I think I've made her life, you know, that little bit better. I hear she's doing quite well health-wise. I think that, you know, helping people, like a lot of our team do do it, and I was just doing my job. So it sort of just came natural to help her. Property agent Sally McCormack finishing that report from Owen Jarks. Let's stay in southeast Queensland. If disasters ever cause shortages on supermarket shelves, groups of passionate volunteers are set to support local food security with a precious seed bank of hardy and heirloom variety vegetables. And as Jennifer Nichols reports, one of the most appealing things about the National Seed Library movement is that people can pick up seeds for free. So people can come in and choose something to grow... There's pumpkin seeds in here at the moment, different types of lettuce. There's also flowering things like zinnia, 
cosmos. Gathered in their local library, Soltis Corley has rallied a passionate bunch of people who are focused on feeding their community for free. They're sorting and labelling seeds gathered from local vegetable gardens. I love what people write on the packets, like that's yellow happy marrow. Happy marrow, <laughs> so lovely. And they are, they're really cheery. The volunteers are providing food for thought on how to buck the system and bypass big hardware stores and imported seed. Mulaney in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland joined the seed library movement in January 2023. Oh, I think it's a fabulous program and offers so many opportunities for people to get involved with gardening that perhaps may not have ventured into the garden before. Carleen Fitzgerald is one of the volunteers. It just enables us to share this precious resource of seeds and ensure that future generations have lots of wonderful choice when it comes to produce and eating healthy things. Soltis Corley coordinated the trials at Mullaney and Kiwana Libraries. There's always a variety of things in here and we try to keep it stocked. And a lot of what you find in here is what's gone to seed this season. Visitors can take up to two packets of seed for free. Lettuce or tomatoes. Tomatoes and lettuce. And deposit seeds as well. This is um, amaranth seed that hasn't been winnowed yet. So it's still full of all the fluffy Mom. seed pods. Yeah, we've had almost 3,000 seed packets taken from our libraries. Katrina Nielsen from Sunshine Coast Libraries is happy that a six-month trial for the seed library was so successful that the program's been extended. Um, And all the feedback that we've received has been really great. And yeah, people wanted it more libraries. It's a really great response. This is Shiso Perilla and it's grown for its delicious leaf which some people say has the taste of Japan. It's used a lot in Asian cooking. By collecting hardy local and heirloom vegetable seeds from their gardens, the volunteers are reducing Australia's heavy reliance on imported seeds to produce a wide range of crops, including vegetables. Those imports bring increased biosecurity risks as the spread of seed-borne pathogens expand globally. Import requirements include regular testing and treatment of seed using techniques like being heated or coated with fungicides. People don't realise that we import so much seed. And the thing with the import of all that seed is that seed gets treated. For anyone wanting to have an organic status, they no longer can. So the importance of maintaining seed strains of existing species in a non-chemically treated way grows and grows. Gardening Australia host Costa Georgiadis says seed libraries make sense. I think it's really important that these seed libraries are maintained so that people that do not want their seeds pre-treated with pre-emergent chemicals So that that's the first thing that the plant experiences is a chemical as soon as it breaks out of the seed. You know, these are choices that people should be able to keep. And the only way that's going to be kept is if those seeds are maintained in seed libraries, those seeds adapt and adjust to your microclimate and your part of the world. And having a seed library illustrates to non-gardeners, illustrates to non-farmers, illustrates to anyone that we can be the custodians of our future food security.
by having seed banks in our local community so that if something happens, as we saw a few years ago, and there's a drought or floods or a combination of both or a pandemic and panic and all of these things put together, when you have a local seed bank, you have food certainty. The Saltus Corley, the Seed Library and the monthly harvest swaps she organises are a way to connect with her community and feed people, including her son Oki, with healthy organic food. She hopes more people put the idea into practice. The seed libraries work well when the community gets on board, when there's people who are willing to collect the seed and pack it and bring it back to the library for their community. They want to roll it out to more libraries, so they need more people to get involved. Seed library volunteer Saltus Corley, ending that story from Jennifer Nichols. Over the weekend, the northern Queensland community of Normanton became Australia's cowgirl capital as it hosted the country's first ever all-women's rodeo. A sea of pink washed over the crowd with competitors travelling long distances for a chance to make their mark on the sport. From Queensland's Gulf of Carpentaria, reporter Emily Dobson went along to catch the action. In a red dirt arena 500 kilometres north of Mount Isa, history is being made. And self-described concrete cowgirl Emily Collitz, who's originally from Brisbane, is relishing the opportunity. If it was just a regular everyday rodeo, I probably wouldn't have gotten in the car and paid for the diesel. Diesel's expensive right now (laughs) to come all the way out here, but it's an all-women's rodeo. You don't see that in Australia. And I'm also getting to be involved in getting girls that start in a really, really great event that I want to see expand and grow in Australia. The rodeo circuit has traditionally excluded women, but at Normanton, dozens have competed over four events in Australia's first all-women's rodeo. So rodeo doesn't change very often. You don't see women riding in a lot of those open events, so having the crowd enjoy it, having the women have fun and make some good rides will just make all the difference. Um, this, I get to wear my partner's buckle till... Um... In front of 600 spectators, another competitor, Emily Hawkins from Emerald, says she's been waiting a decade for an opportunity like this on home soil. For women's events like this are important to show that women can match up with Bronx and Bulls and show that we are just as tough as boys and have, have just as much heart. And in my opinion, you've got to have more heart and more try than a fella just to show that you want to be there and you prove that you can be there. It's the efforts of locals like Cherie Schaefer that got the event off the ground in the first place. Cherie's been pushing for a greater presence of events for women in the remote Gulf country. I feel it's just a success before we've even kicked it off. Being the first one, do you know what I mean? So you've got to start somewhere. It's got a lot of social attention, you know, the shares, the views, the inquiries. So I feel like, you know, some events... The first one is a great starting point, but then you can shape it from there. I also make sure that before I do kick off something, I have some conversations in community just to see if it's something that will be well received or if it's something that they want. And if not, well, I just shift my direction to something that they think, you know, is more suited to the community. I would like to sustain what I've done this year. So I've done, you know, the two female events um, you know, the rodeo for next year. You know, it doesn't have to be that each rodeo is all women, but they have specifically just women categories, you know, so just the women's bronc or the bullock ride. So they're not competing with the men. That's probably my ideal. 
And it's not just the women who were happy to see this event come together. I think like some of those girls can ride better than some of the men. So, and, and they're out there in every station camp. They're, they're out there doing the work. A lot of them are as tough, for sure. The lack of opportunity for women is something Normanton Rodeo Committee member Ashley Gallagher is keen to change. I've got four daughters of my own, but I've also got five nieces. Those girls have grown up mustering and, and um, doing all the work that the men do. So for them to have the opportunity to do the things that they want to do, yeah, as a parent, I want to be a part of it. And he says it's all about having a little fun too. For them to be able to compete on a level playing field, like normally the, the women go into um, events with with the men in them, like at other radios. For them to have the opportunity to ride on a level playing field, I think, is, is great. Whether newcomers to the sport or riders on the professional circuit, the women are all hoping for recognition and a shot at winning a coveted belt buckle emblazoned with their achievements. I just think we've got to, all of us that are riding, got to just keep showing up and supporting the committees that do put on these little events and just keep at it, keep trying and keep getting on them. Rodeo competitor Emily Halkins ending that report from Emily Dobson in Queensland's Gulf of Carpentaria. And finally here on Australia Wide, there's a character in every community and the small fishing town of Lucinda in North Queensland is no exception. Bob Miller, known as Pelican Bob, was once a cabaret singer and sign writer in Adelaide. But these days you can find him on the beach, inspiring others to find joy in the little things. Chloe Shimicki has this story. The sun is rising on another day in the sleepy fishing hamlet of Lucinda. And just like yesterday, there's a colony of seagulls lining the shore. There's a six kilometre jetty stretching out into the coral sea. And there's Pelican Bob, knee deep in the water, chasing the catch of the day. Remember anyone can dream. And nothing's bad as it may seem. Each morning, the 78-year-old makes a 30-kilometre journey through cane fields to the same fishing spot. This is my office every morning. It's a pretty, pretty bad place to have an office, but somebody's got to do it. Caught quite a few good fish off here. 72 barramundi, 11 queenfish over a metre long. Pelican Bob, whose real name is Bob Miller, moved from Adelaide to tropical North Queensland 20 years ago in search of a warmer climate. He earned his nickname by affectionately feeding the pelicans that migrate to the seaside town during the dry season. I've been feeding the pelicans for about probably eight years, but five years that, that illustrious name stuck. <laughs> He doesn't have a phone or a computer, but his ethos of living offline doesn't hurt his popularity one bit. Pelican Bob is popular with both locals and travellers from across Australia who often benefit from his generosity. The thing I love most of all is giving the fish away. You know, if I see somebody come down here and you see them down here two or three days in a row and not get even a bite, and you feel so sorry for them because they've gone to the trouble of getting the bait and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, are you coming down tomorrow? Yes. Well, I'll, I'll bring some processed fish down for you. So I'll bring them a pack of frozen spotted mackerel or uh, queenie or whatever I've got. And, and they take it up the caravan park, thaw it out and eat it that night. And they come down the following day and say, that was beautiful. You know, that was... So at least I've had a feed of fish. He's a benefit to the tiny town of 400 people, which largely relies on tourists. And even the Progress Association has taken note. 
Joan DeViti. Oh, Pelican Bob is a legend to Lucinda. He comes every single day and if he is missing, we're all looking for him. He says he receives more than he gives, but we certainly know he gives to us. The local legend has been immortalised. Painted on an electricity pole outside of the local fish and chip shop by artist David Rowe. We'll grow old and die, but hopefully the pole stays there forever. <laughs> if Ergon doesn't get rid of it, yeah. In his past life, Bob Miller enjoyed the spotlight as the frontman of a cabaret group. He still performs while casting Annette and Line. And you're happy when you're blue. It isn't very hard to do. And the retired sign writer turns the beach into his canvas. Bit of fun. If the fish aren't biting, you can always do a bit of bit of graffiti on the beach. Those may be the signs of a bored fisherman, but Pelican Bob insists there's nowhere he'd rather be than Lucinda. If you're in Victoria or South Australia or any of the other states, do yourself a favour, come up here for a while. I guarantee you'll be like me, you'll be, be bitten by the tropical bug and won't want to go back to the, to the places you came from. <laughs> Pelican Bob finishing that story from Chloe Shimicki in Lucinda, North Queensland. And that is Australia Wide for this Tuesday. I'm Alex Hyman. Thanks so much for your company. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.